0: This past week, we were in New York City. We, we talked about a little bit about our trip and um, working really hard long days, late nights that kind of stuff a lot of a lot of business on Friday though we got a little bit of time in the morning. Uh, and a little bit of the afternoon where we had some free time to go do some sightseeing before we went in the evening then to work at the New York City Rescue Mission. And we got to see some of the really cool sights there in New York City. One of my favorite, though, that really stuck out to me was the Statue of Liberty that we got to see from from Staten Island Ferry. And uh, just really amazing to see uh, her in person and to see and to think about the history of what's happened at that place. You know, we are a nation of immigrants, all of us, unless we're Native Americans. American have come from some other part around the world and have come to America as an immigrant, and many of our families have perhaps even come through this, uh, this place there, Ellis Island in New York City. And it's amazing to think about all of the individuals and families who have come underneath her shadow in the pursuit of life, liberty and happiness. And that pursuit of happiness is something that all of us as human beings continue to strive for every single day. There's something that's natural about that, that we want to pursue happiness for ourselves. That's, that's what we do and that's, that's who we are. It's human nature. But it sure seems like it's elusive, isn't it? That state of happiness, that pursuit of happiness, it's really hard to find. This past uh, spring, Tara and I seemed like our lives were even more demanding and busier than normal. It seemed like as the sunlight got longer, our days certainly didn't get longer, but our list of places to go and events to be at got a lot longer, and the days got shorter. And We were kind of just falling into bed, you know, sort of at night for a season. And maybe you uh, can relate and have thought and have lived there before, I'm sure. We could have used four personal Uber drivers who would take us from place to place to all the things that us and our kids, you know, had to, uh, to be at. There was one night where uh, Tara and I uh, were both at work and we had to, to quickly, you know, leave when as soon as we could. And then we had to get our kids kind of places that they had to go. We had our do- oldest daughter was in track practice. Our sons had a baseball game. We had to go pick up our youngest daughter. And uh, she, in the middle of this kind of craziness, is potty training. She's three. And she's, uh, so we had to stop at inconvenient times whenever we need to, to help her to be successful in this training that she's doing. And so we're running back and forth, kids in different places. Then we gotta get food to our daughter who had track because now she has a concert later that night you know, at the same school um, who didn't think about us as a family and what that meant for us, right? And, and so, so we're kind of running around all this kind of craziness. Finally that night we get back home. And it's later at night and our daughter Emery, who's potty training, didn't quite make the last one. And so she had an accident, which I'm cleaning up. It's number two and it's all over her. And so, you know, I had to wash my hands several times because of, you know, the situation that I found myself in. And, and so taking care of that getting her to bed finally, and then finally sort of falling onto the couch next to Tara. And we had a conversation, something like this. Maybe you've had one like it before. I don't know if I can keep doing this, right? This is crazy. I don't know whose lives we're living, but it doesn't seem like they're ours anymore, or what I was picturing they were going to be like, right? Do you ever find yourself thinking the pursuit of happiness shouldn't be this hard? Maybe not those words, because we don't really talk in terms of the pursuit of happiness, but maybe you've thought that before, that it shouldn't be this hard to be happy. Life shouldn't be as difficult as it seems it is day after day. I'm sure you have thought that, because that's how we think naturally as humans. Maybe the demands and the responsibilities of life are weighing you down like Tara and I sometimes feel. Or or maybe it's something different. Maybe you find yourself in a season where you are now caring for an aging parent or two parents. And instead of you being able to rely on them, now they are relying on you. And it can seem overwhelming. Or maybe you're in that situation, but maybe it brings up the ugliness that you have to work through because you couldn't rely on them. But now they still need you. You're trying to figure out what that means to honor your parents in the midst of your past or maybe you just find yourself in a job that you don't love. Maybe you never did and you feel stuck and you find that here you are at 35 or 45 or 55 and you're trying to figure out what am I supposed to do when I grow up? What am I supposed to be? Or maybe someone that you love or even you yourself are going through a, a new health crisis that completely caught you off guard and you're struggling to cope, to figure it out. Or maybe bill after bill piles up, and every month you just feel the financial stress and weight of finance problems that you can't find out a way or figure out a way to solve. Do you ever find yourself thinking all that you want or would love from life is just not have any problems? You find yourself thinking that, I I just wish that there would be some relief that would come to this pressure that I constantly face. All that you want is some happiness. And maybe in the midst of this series that we're in right now on miracles, you, you find yourself praying and asking for this miracle that God would, would just bring relief or bring whatever it is that you're desiring or whatever you're longing for, that God would just finally bring it to you. And that's what you've been praying for this entire series. When you're feeling that way, I don't know about you, but, but maybe you find yourself sometimes even asking this question. Uh, does, is God for me or against me in my life? Or if he's for me, it seems like, does he have enough power to actually affect what's happening or going on and the pressures that I'm facing? Why doesn't he take some of them away? I imagine you are probably tempted in your honest moments to think, Questions like that, but maybe that's the wrong question. As I was thinking about this this passage this week, pulling away in the early mornings from the team to, to think and to pray and to reflect and to work, I think that sometimes we ask the wrong questions, and instead of asking those questions about God, instead have we ever considered that God might have a different goal in mind for our lives than we do? That perhaps God is aiming for a different target than you and I are aiming for. And that's why it seems like every day we're in competition with where he's trying to do or take us in our lives. Because he's not going the same direction or the same place that we are. As we're in this series, we're going to see that Jesus' 12 disciples had to, had to come up with the same question had to face it themselves. They had to face this reality. Right in the middle of Jesus' miracles that they were witnessing, Jesus teaches them something about what we're talking about today. Right in the middle of these miracles, he, they had to consider was his plan for their lives the same as their plans were for their lives. And so turn to John chapter 6 in your Bibles if you need one, our ashes are coming forward in both of our rooms. They'd love to give you one because I'd like for you to follow along today. John is the fourth gospel in the New Testament. And we're going to look at John chapter 6, verses 16 to 21 today. We are picking up right where we left off last week when Pastor Jim was here. And we looked at the first 15 verses where Jesus feeds The 5,000 people with just a few loaves of bread and a few fish. And in the middle of the series that we're in called I Believe in Miracles, we are looking at seven miracles from the gospel of John, or seven signs that prove his deity, that he was in fact God, which was the purpose of John's gospel, which is why he wrote about these seven signs that he writes about. We're going to pick up there. Today, we're going to discuss the cost of miracles. Would you stand and read with me together? We're going to read verses 16 to 21. Those five verses we'll read all together. Ready? Read. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set across for the lake of Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Thanks for reading along. Sorry that I messed up. Jesus and his disciples had been ministering to people all day long. And I imagine if you and I fed a group of 5,000 people after teaching them for a while, we would probably be tired like they were tired. And so they wanted to pull away to sort of regroup is where this picks up. It says when the evening came, his disciples went down to the lake. Jesus isn't with them. We're going to find out from another passage that he pulls himself away up to a mountain to pray. And so they're kind of regrouping here from their important, busy day of ministering to people. The disciples are heading back across the lake. It's getting dark. The Sea of Galilee is eight miles wide in its plate in certain places, and so it's not like a small, small lake that we have lots of you know dotting here, our community in this part of Indiana. It's a large, large lake, eight miles wide, that you can't see across the other side, especially at nighttime when it's dark. You're not seeing, you know, big city lights or anything like that. There's, they don't exist. And so they're on the boat and it's dark. Now, if it was me, it would sound a little scary. There's no lights on the boat. There's no natural light or anything. You're kind of going across this dark lake with the moonlight helping some, but you're out in the middle of it. If it was me picturing this, I would start in my mind to cue the Jaws music, like something bad is going to happen, right? Why are we going out on the lake at nighttime when it's dark? What are we doing? But that's not how these guys were. They weren't scared by that. In fact, because some of them are commercial fishermen, maybe you can remember other stories in the gospel where they actually did, they actually fished at night. They actually would often go out at night and fish. So they weren't scared by that. It was pretty normal to go out there. And, and uh, they're fishing, uh, took them out there very often. So no big deal. Um, until there is a big deal. Verse 18 says that a strong wind started blowing them and the waters grew rough. Now, that's different when you're out in the lake and when you kind of picture yourself, or you picture yourself retiring to a lake someday, you kind of picture the nice, calm, serene picture. That's what's in your mind. Right? Those, are the, those are the ones that are on the walls of that lake cottage in your mind. You don't have pictures of storms on those lake cottages where ships are getting shipwrecked and that kind of thing. That's not what we picture in our mind, but that's what's happening now. In meteorology, winds are often referred to according to their strength. A short burst of a high-speed wind is termed a gust, right? Uh, strong winds that last, uh, oh, just a minute or so are termed squalls. Long-duration winds have various names, um, such as a breeze or a gale or a storm all the way up to hurricane. In the early 19th century, about 200 or so years ago, there wasn't a classification system yet for wind. Naval officers made regular uh, weather observations, but there wasn't a standard scale. So what could be one man's stiff breeze was another man's soft breeze, and it would cause problems. There's a man named Francis Buford who wanted to standardize a scale. And the reason was when he was 15, his boat was shipwrecked because of a faulty uh, chart that they were using. And so he had a lifelong awareness of the value of these things for those who were risking their lives in the seas. And so he developed a scale from zero to 12 where people could document uh, from the boat what the wind was like. Uh, zero being that the, uh, the water was like a mirror and completely still. Four being that there begins to be small white caps all the way up to 12, which is hurricane where there are 14 meter high waves or more and there's exactly no visibility. So it's interesting to read about that. We don't know what was happening, what number they would have put this night on out in the boat, but we can be sure that they were incredibly uh, inconvenienced and it wasn't pleasant by reading it. Uh, Verse 19 says that they were three or four miles out so they're potentially about halfway across by this point. And they're in the middle of the lake. The wind is fighting them. And so they're rowing. They're not sailing. The wind's going the wrong way and fighting them and tossing them. The water is getting rough. They're probably thinking about that time. You know, I wish Jesus would have come with us. It may have been great if, if the person who just fed 5,000 people with just a little, little couple pieces of bread was along. He could probably help us out in a situation like this, right? And then all of a sudden, though, as they're in the middle of this, they see a figure coming across the water. And at first, they don't know what it is. They realize then that it's Jesus. And they are frightened, though, before they realize it's him. They're frightened. That makes sense to me. I would be, too. All of a sudden, they're out in the middle of the lake. It's dark. And then they see somebody walking to them. That would frighten me as well. That would probably frighten you. And the reason that those things frighten us is actually... uh, pretty simple, but it, it's, it's important. They weren't scared of the storm because they had seen that before. But all of a sudden when they see a person walking on the water to them, they're frightened because they hadn't seen that before. And what we fear most is what is unknown to us. When we go through things that maybe we faced before, we have less fear in them. But when we face something for the very first time, or we feel like something is overwhelming to us, we become incredibly fearful. When they faced something they hadn't seen before, when they saw something they couldn't explain, that's when they got scared. That's how we are as well. But then they realize that it's Jesus. He says to them, it's I. Don't be afraid. And so after they realize who it is, they allow him to come into the boat. They're willing, the scripture says, to let him in. That's funny. As if he couldn't just go in. But then a second miracle happens. Did you catch at the very end of verse 21? Once, uh, verse 21 um, immediately, once he comes in the boat, it says immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. And so all of a sudden, they're not in the middle of the lake anymore. Bam. Now they are where they were trying to get. And I imagine their jaws, like, hit the deck of the boat. They see him, first of all, walking on the water. Then he gets in the boat. And now they're actually, bam, just like that. They're right there where they had wanted to go. And asking themselves, what just happened? That's a great question. That's what we're asking today. What is going on here? And what does this have to do with our pursuit of happiness? To help us answer this, keep your finger there, John 6, because we're going to come back to it. But we're going to compare this this text to Mark chapter 6. Just two books back. Another one of the four Gospels. It's it's important to remember that the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, are recording about a lot of the same events. And they're written by four different authors. And so we can see four different perspectives um, on the same event. And each author might remember something a little different that they noticed that the other person might have missed. Um, And so even though they all are in harmony, um, you can see some different pieces of information come out of each one. It'd be like if you and another friend were both describing to me what you saw at the air show yesterday, you might remember different things. You might describe it differently. That's what happens with the four gospels. So let's take a look at Mark 6 to pick out a few more details. And so we see that uh, in verse 30, Jesus is feeding the 5,000. And then immediately after that, verse 45 is when Jesus is going to walk on the water. And so we know this is the same story. It happens right afterwards, just like it did there. In verse 45, it says, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him. That's helpful to know because now we see that there was some purpose in what Jesus was doing. It wasn't just that he was pulling away and the disciples were just kind of leaving that they thought it was time to go. Jesus actually sends them. He actually says, "No, you need to go right now. Get into the boat." And he immediately, he sends them. So right after the miracle of defeating the feeding of the 5000, Jesus doesn't waste any time. He wants to immediately get them where they need to go. And that's important because Jesus is very intentional. And so he has something that he is trying to teach them. He sends them on ahead with some urgency. We can see that again; they're in the middle of the lake in verse forty-seven, and in verse forty-eight, this detail is added. We kind of knew it, but now it says that they were the disciples were straining at the oars because the wind was against them. And so then, shortly before dawn, Jesus goes out to them, walking on the lake. It's really important that we see that picture here in this passage, that we kind of take a step back and look at what's happening. And we compare the way that both authors are writing that. um, And it really comes out here in Mark, that the disciples are in the middle of the boat, in the middle of the lake, I'm sorry, and they are straining at the oars. That describes what? That they're like working really hard. Like they're doing their best, but they're not getting anywhere because the wind was against them, because the storm was so bad. They're straining for all that they have And they're not getting anywhere. They're stuck in the middle of that storm, right? That's the picture of them. What's the picture then of Jesus? Jesus sees the storm. And is he struggling with the storm? Is he straining against the storm? No, he's doing what? He's going for a walk. He's going for a walk. And I love how verse 48 even points out this detail. It says that he was about to what? Pass them. He was about to pass them. They're in a boat. They have men that are straining at these oars and they're getting nowhere. And Jesus is going for a walk and he's about to walk right past them. That's the picture we're supposed to get. That Jesus is incredibly powerful. That Jesus isn't under the same limitations that you and I are. That the storms of our lives that make us feel helpless and stuck are nothing to him. He is God And he is powerful, and that's good. But that's not the whole point of the story. That's not the whole point of the story. The point of the story is that he is God, not just his power, but that he is God and that we are not God. That's equally important because the disciples are described. And so it's important to recognize his great power, but it's also important for us to recognize that we're not God. He is. And so we're not really in control of things. He is. And I think that's the point that Jesus was trying to get across, and hopefully I'll be able to help you understand that. Why is it that Jesus wanted to teach them that lesson? Why did he send them out into the storm? You know, one of the remarkable things about this passage here is Jesus walking on the water and the disciples then reaching their destination all of a sudden very quickly, is that it's nothing's made of it in the rest of the chapter here. Jesus is teaching uh, to this large mass of people, 5,000 plus people, right? He feeds them. Then he immediately sends them away, the disciples, so that this happens. Then if we were to keep reading in John 6, he comes, the crowd comes the next day, and he continues to teach them. And he continues to explain things to them about following him. But he never ever mentions this miracle happening in the middle. It doesn't get any. The disciples don't talk about it. He doesn't talk about it because it was related to the feeding of the 5,000. That, it was related to that. And, and so John's not telling this miracle in a way where he's setting a stage for a long dialogue about Jesus' ability to walk on water. That, that wasn't what was important. But this miracle is embedded in the story of the feeding of 5,000. So John is telling this short and amazing story, an incident of Jesus walking on the water to clarify something to underline something in the story about the loaves and the fish. Look at what I mean. So we are still in Mark. Look at verse 51 of chapter 6. So he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down, and they were completely amazed. Verse 52. For they had not understood about the what? About the loaves. They missed what Jesus was trying to do in that feeding of the 5,000 miracle. And I'm going to say they, along with everybody else who was there, missed it. Okay? That's important you note that. They had not understood about the loaves. Why? Because their hearts were what? Hardened. Hardened. Their hearts were hardened. They missed what Jesus was trying to teach to the feeding of the 5,000 because their hearts were hardened. That's important as we continue to try to remember what, or try to learn what Jesus was teaching. And... If we take a look back, we'll understand Jesus is showing to the disciples that underlined something uh, he was trying to teach in the feeding of the 5,000. So remember that, but now turn back to John 6. And let's go back to our main story here. And look at what happens right before Jesus immediately sends them onto the lake. Okay? He immediately sends them out. But right before that, at the very end of the passage we looked at last week, look at verses 14 and 15 with me. After the people saw the sign that Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is coming to the world. So they saw that, they got that. Okay, Jesus, he is it, he's God. And they understood that part. And that's what Jesus was trying to show through these miracles that he was the one who had been promised, he was the one who had come to rescue them. But then they missed the application of what that means. Verse 15. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him what? King, by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So he pushes the disciples into the boat, get across the lake. He goes to the mountain because they had missed and not understood the message or the miracle of the loaves because their hearts were hard. The crowd wanted to make him the king. That's why Jesus removed himself and immediately sent the disciples on the lake. The crowd wanted to make him the king. In other words, the crowd, wanted, the crowd wanted him to keep doing miracles. The crowd wanted him to make life easy for them. He fed us yesterday. If we show up today, I bet he'll feed us again. Life will be easy. Life will be free. Watch this. The crowd had wanted him, Jesus, to make them happy. And that was not his purpose on earth. If it feels like Jesus is not working towards your pursuit of happiness, it's because he is not, right? That's not his ultimate goal for your life and for my life. And that's why sometimes our hearts get hard because we wonder where's God at? Why is my life not happier? Why is my life not easier? Why is he doing miracle after miracle after miracle to come through for me? And that's what this crowd wanted. They wanted to make him king. They wanted him to be in charge. They wanted him to take care of them. And that's not why he came. To make us happy. Mark said that they had not understood the miracle of the loaves because their hearts were hard. Here's the truth. Forgetful minds lead to hard hearts. And here's what I mean by that. The disciples had forgotten Jesus's mission on earth. They would have been glad to go along with the crowd and let him be king. They, they, they asked for it all the time, didn't they? I mean, think back to this, what you've read in the Gospels. How often did the disciples say, is now the time, Jesus, when you're going to establish your kingdom? Is this the time now when you're going to set up things and rule? Peter thought, I'd be a great prime minister. Judas thought, man, I'll be the secretary of the treasury, right? They wanted him to be king. And so when this actually starts to happen, what is Jesus' response? He immediately gets them out of there. That's not what we're doing right now. He immediately gets them under the boat to get them back across the lake because their hearts, like the crowd's hearts, were hard and they missed the meaning of the miracle of the 5,000. It wasn't about Jesus taking care of every need they had to make life easy for them and happy. That wasn't why he came. And that's not why he exists in our lives either to give us miracles over and over so that we can live a life that's easy and free, never sick and never poor, as some mistaken preachers will teach. His ultimate mission on this earth is to give himself the greatest glory. And that comes by seeking and saving lost people. That's why he came to get great glory by seeking and saving lost people. And sometimes he gets great glory by performing incredible miracles, like healing somebody or feeding 5,000 people. And people see that and they turn to him. But sometimes God gets greater glory by sending us into a storm where we can do nothing except turn to him. Forgetful minds lead to hard hearts when we forget the mission and our hearts get hard when we want happiness over living on mission. That's when we begin to say, God, how come you're not there? How come you're not taking care of me? Because we've forgotten our hearts have become hard. We've forgotten why he's in our lives. It's for the purpose of reaching lost people, of being a part of his mission in this world. There will come a time in the future when all things will be made right. There will come a time in the future when all of our sicknesses will be healed. There will come a time in the future when all of our struggles will be no more. But that time is not now. For now, the mission is to reach a lost world that's people, that's neighbors, that's strangers. That's those who have never heard. That's those who are different from us. That's those who we've never met. That's why it takes us being intentional to be on mission, to keep our hearts from being hard, to remind ourselves to not forget why Christ came, why he saved us. It wasn't for me to be happy. It was so that I could join his team and go reach the world. The mission that Christ's sacrificial love demonstrates as he gave his life, he then asks us to give our lives is to do whatever it takes to reach our world. Even if it means sacrificing our happiness. Forgetful minds lead to hard hearts, but here's the opposite truth. Surrendered wills lead to missional living when we surrender our will to say, God, my life is yours, whatever you want for me, whatever you need me to do, I'm in, I'm following you. When we have that kind of surrendered will, which isn't something that we keep every single day, we often are tempted to pursue that happiness again. But when we have that surrendered will, that we make that conscious choice daily to say, Christ, I'm yours, wherever you need me to go today, whoever you need to talk to me to talk to today, whoever you need me to love today, I'm in. That's my number one mission. That leads to missional living. And that's what Jesus is after in all of us. So that's not a calling reserved only for a few. To follow Jesus when he first called his disciples, he told them this, but they forgot, right? They had hard hearts. What did he tell them it meant to follow him? If you're gonna follow me, you're going to fish for people. And so if we're gonna follow Jesus, we're gonna fish for people. And if I'm not fishing for people, then I am not following Jesus. Because that's his most basic thing. If we're going to follow him, is that I'm friendly? Is that I'm initiating conversations with others? That I'm taking time to get to know their story, not always talking about my story? and I'm offering them a hope that they have in Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is after in every single one of us. That's the calling on all of our lives. If we're to follow him, then we're to fish, the fish for people, no matter the cost to ourselves. Was Jesus being cruel and sending them out into this storm? Is Jesus cruel that he asks us to sacrifice and give up things to follow him? Is he cruel to ask us to walk through hardship? Actually, the opposite is true. He was protecting them, and He protects us from the greater danger of living a life of ease and happiness that is empty and completely insignificant. He was protecting them. He protects us. We must be willing to do whatever it takes to reach others. That's our mission right now for this time on earth. Heaven will come, but we're not there yet. And the temptation in a series like this we're going through is to believe that God somehow must come through in every miracle that we're asking him to do. Because he can Does God have the power to do the miraculous and heal someone or turn a company around when we beg him to, if it accomplishes his greater glory? Absolutely he can. And he does. And we're seeing miracles happen this year. And we have every right to ask our loving father for those things. He wants to hear from you. He loves you. But he also has every right to say to us, What you're asking for does not fulfill my mission in this case. He has every right to say the place that you are currently in is where I can use you the most effective right now. Because he is God and we are not. And we have to be okay with that. My sons and I followed the NBA. There's a lot of teams, people joining together right now. There's super teams where in the NBA, where two or three or even four superstars all join the same team so they can win a championship. Even this week, right? Chris Paul went to the Rockets to play with James Harden. That'll be fun to watch next year. And, And then even just this weekend, Paul George, right? Teaming up with Russell Westbrook. Sorry, Pacer fans. But on the team that we are on, the championship that we are going after, which is to reach the world for Jesus, we are using a different strategy. Reaching the world is a greater championship than anything we could ever accomplish on this earth. And on our team, there is only one superstar. And his name is Jesus Christ. That spot's already taken. All of us are the role players. We're not stars. We're not stars in the team. We don't get preferential treatment. Christ is the superstar. He's the one who gets the glory. He's the one who gets the attention. He's the one who gets the fame. Our job is to do our role. Our job is to do our job. But here's the cool thing. When we submit to our role, like every great team, when everybody completes their role, Jesus, we can count on him to do his thing. He's gonna be great at the end of the game. He's gonna be great in the first quarter. He's gonna be great. We can count on him. And then when we submit to our roles on the team, we light up the scoreboard. And we see God do miracle after miracle after miracle to reach our world for Jesus. Our team saw this that truth this week and so many of that we met people who were willing to accept their roles on the team. We met a man who is from England, who lives in Brooklyn and said that he really hates living in the city. But he loves the people that he's reaching and he knows that's where he's supposed to live. So he lives there. We met a couple that's pushing 70 who accepted Christ. They're from India. And they were called to move to the United States to reach Hindus here living in the U.S. And they are on mission day after day, long days. Because that's what God has asked them to do. And the husband, whose name was Chandra, said this, and I wrote it down. He said, I'm not happy that God changed me so I could just be happy. I'm glad that God changed me so that my changed life could reach others. And then he added this, sacrifice and dedication are part of following Christ. And his wife said, and there is no turning back. Christ didn't change our lives just so that we would be happy with that. He, the reason he changes our lives, the reason that he does miracles in our lives is so that we can be a witness and a testimony to others who need to find him. as you find yourself in this season of life that you're in, I would ask you to ask yourself, is your heart hard? Have you forgotten the mission? Do you find yourself today being part of the crowd that just wants to see miracle after miracle without the cost of the miracles? The cost of of the greatest miracle, our hearts being redeemed is that our lives are no longer ours. That's the cost of miracles. Because my life is not mine. And your life is not yours. But it's actually great news. Because our submitted lives, in our submitted lives, we will see God do miracles And one of the greatest miracles will be that he'll change our desires and our standard of happiness. And you will find that if you begin to sacrifice for the cause of Christ and are willing to do whatever it takes to reach people, that it doesn't feel like a sacrifice. Because you're so glad to do it because you love Jesus. Because of what he's done for you. Let me give you three thoughts of comfort about Jesus as we think about this and begin to wrap this up today. If you find yourself in a storm, in a difficult place, three things we learn about Jesus from this story and the way he treated his friends, his disciples. Number one, he brought you here. In other words, there is purpose to everything that we endure in our lives. He's the one in control and he brought us. And he doesn't bring us into storms simply for his pleasure because it somehow makes him happy to see us suffer. No. There is purpose in everything we endure in this life. There are two kinds of storms. Storms of correction and storms of perfection. Storms of correction are the result of our sin, our shortcomings, our own making. Jonah the prophet was caught up in a storm. He was thrown overboard and swallowed by a big fish because he was in rebellion against God. That's a storm of correction. But then there are storms of perfection. And let me say, so if you're in a storm right now because of a correction, that's kind of on you. That's not on Jesus. But he loves you and he's using that to bring you back to his plan. But if you find yourself in something where you say, God, I've done nothing wrong. I don't know why I'm in this. Neither had the disciples. They had obeyed. They passed out the food. They did what they were supposed to do. Now they find themselves in the middle of a storm with a ghost walking on the water at them. Sometimes God puts into our lives storms of perfection. And that is when God is helping us grow. The disciples needed to be reminded of the mission they needed their faith stretched. And those can on, that kind of growing only happens in storms of perfection. It doesn't happen anywhere else. And so because he loves us, he does the same with us. But let me give you comfort that he brought you into it and he never ever wastes any hardship. Second thought of comfort about Jesus is that he will come to you. He brought you to it and he will come to you. And that's what I think Jesus is underlining and clarifying when he comes to them walking on the water. Verse 17 says that it was now dark. And Jesus had not yet come to them. So here's a picture of the disciples. They're in a dark storm, all by themselves without him. And what does he do? He comes to them. He gives them the miracle of his presence when they thought there was no way he could be with them. Maybe you find yourself in a situation where you think he's not with you and he gives you the miracle of his presence, of his peace. He sees you today. And like he said to the disciples on this day, he says, it is I. It's Jesus. Do not be afraid. He brought you. He will come to you. Number three, he He will see you through. Just like that, when Jesus got onto the boat, they were at their destination. They were no longer halfway through, stuck, rowing, getting nowhere. At the right time, Jesus will bring you through. And he will get you to the right destination. He brought you, he will come to you, he will see you through. Three thoughts of comfort about Jesus. Now let me give you three thoughts of surrender to Jesus. <clears throat> From the story. Number one, everyone will sacrifice for the mission. There's no, uh, there's no pass. To follow Christ means to have struggle. But I say this as an encouragement too, um, to remind yourself that everyone will sacrifice for the mission. So if you find yourself in a hard place, in a struggle where you are are sacrificing for Christ, or you're in some sort of hardship, be careful not to compare yourself to other people and to think that you are the only one who is being asked to sacrifice. Be careful to compare yourself to others that's dangerous because you don't really know what you think you know about their story. We learned that this week over and over, didn't we guys? We, we thought we knew something about a person by looking or whatever, or even ourselves and our team. But we don't know everything about everybody that we think we do. Everyone will sacrifice for the mission. Number two, a second thought about surrender to Jesus. Right now, You have no idea how God may want to use your life to accomplish his mission. We just don't know. And so be careful to not put God in a box. You don't know what God's gonna ask of you to say, well, I'm, I'm never gonna move away from my family or I'm never going to, to like those people. I would never see myself going to another part of the world or I'll never leave this company or I'll never change careers or I'll never, never, never. Listen, you can't put God in a box. You don't know what he's going to ask you to do, but he's the superstar on the team. He's the one who dictates where we play, how we play, what role we play. That's not our choice. He may ask you to walk through health crises that you would never pick. But he's going to get greater glory through it and it's going to be effective to reach this world. He may need you to move and relocate your family. He may want you to reach people that you don't know yet. God's plan is so much greater than our pursuit of happiness. So we must simply be completely surrendered to his will for our lives to do whatever it takes. Everyone will sacrifice for the mission. You have no idea how God may want to use your life to accomplish his mission. So don't put yourself in a box or put God in a box. Number three, Following Jesus costs you everything. There's no shortcut. It may cost you your family relationships. When we were in New York this week, our kids got to spend the week with my parents in Pennsylvania. We dropped them off on the way and we picked them up on the way back. And yesterday, we, as we picked up our kids... Like every time we do this, they weep, they cry. Because they love their grandma and their granddad. And as much as I love you, and this is a great place to raise a family, this isn't where I would choose. I don't want to live here. But that's the cost that you pay to reach people for the gospel. And there'll come a day when I'll be neighbors with my parents in heaven. And I'll spend a lot of time then. Christ may ask you to make sacrifices. The cost is everything. It might be family. It might be your health. If it gets God greater glory, it certainly will be possessions that you give up so that you can sacrificially give to help others. Sometimes I compare myself to friends that aren't believers and I think, man, how do they buy everything that they have? How do they have so much? And I forget, duh. It's because we give a lot as believers. 10 to 15% or how much you give is a lot of money. And there's things that we give up, but it's worth it because that money is used to reach people with the gospel. And it's not a sacrifice in the end. It's a greater investment than we could ever give, but following Jesus costs you everything. Over the next three years, I know that many of you are sacrificing a lot of things to make this addition happen so that we can reach the next generation here in our community, but that's what it takes. That's what followers of Jesus do to reach those who have yet to be reached. Complete surrender is hard. I'll wrap up with this. I know that. I know it's hard, As one of your pastors, this is not an easy message to share because I know some of the challenges that you're facing. Jesus knew it was hard too, but he taught it anyway. And so here in John chapter 6... After this big crowd wants to make him king, he immediately squelches that, stops that. He teaches the disciples, reminds them of the mission, the reason that he came, the reason that they're there. And then he comes back in the group of people, most of them, the same people come back and he continues to teach them through John chapter 6 about what it means to follow him and about what it's going to cost them. And turn down to John six sixty. On hearing it, many of his disciples, many of the people in that crowd, many of his followers said, this is a what? It's a hard teaching. It is. Who can accept it? Jesus, in verse 61, aware of that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said, does this offend you? And maybe today he's asking you that same question. As you're listening to this, you're saying, I'm not giving that up. I'll serve God. I'll do, you know, I'll I'll give a little bit. I'll do a little bit of service, but I'm not giving him my life. And Christ is here asking you today, does this offend you? I, I, I gave up everything for you and you can only give me a little? Verse 66 says their answer. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And he says to his twelve, who he was closest to, I love this picture here of Jesus. This is his humanity. He says, You do not want to leave too, do you? He asks the twelve. And he asks you today, Is this, does this teaching offend you? You're not going to leave, are you? You won't leave following Christ because it costs you everything, will you? Peter stands up and he gives a great answer Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else? would we go? Who else would we follow besides Christ? Many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. That's the choice you and I have to make. Perhaps if your heart has become hard, perhaps you have forgot the mission, maybe you need to spend some time talking to the Lord today about that and redirecting the course of your life so that you are living to be on mission for him in everything that you do. And then what if we would all answer like Peter? What could God do in our community, through our church, if every single one of us would say to him, you are the savior of my life. Where else can I go? Who else will I follow? If you're asking me to get off the bus, I am in. Whatever you're asking me to do, I am in. Wherever you want me to go, I am in. Wherever you need me, Lord, I am in. That is a church That the gates of hell could not prevail against. And that is the church that Jesus Christ longs to lead here in Goshen, Indiana. Lord Jesus, this is a hard teaching. And so we are looking to you for great strength. Lord, we're looking to you as we lay down our lives one more time for the cause. The disciples, if we follow them through history, ended up giving their lives, every single one of them, and they were glad to do it. Lord Jesus, when we live for you and we sacrifice and we give up for you, God, as we get to know you more, we're glad to do it. Because following you is everything. Lord, I pray for those who need faith to believe that you're there with them. Lord Jesus, would you be so gracious to come alongside and remind them. God, I pray for those who need to be redirected. That's the nice way of saying disciplined. I pray for those, Lord, in our church family, and me included, Lord, whose hearts need to be disciplined because they're hard, because we want you to come through for us without giving you anything back or very little. I pray, God, that you would speak to them. You're a good God, and I know that you'll do that. I pray, God, that you would put us on mission as a church. It'd be easy to look around and say, yeah, look at what God's done. He's done a lot. There are still 150,000 people in our community who yet to have heard, who yet to know that there's a Savior who loves them and has a plan for their life. There's a world full of people, billions of people who have yet to to bend their need to you Lord Jesus, I pray that we would be a church that you would recognize as one that wants to be on mission with you, or that your favor would come upon us, Lord, in a way that it even hasn't in the past. God, that we would see you do greater things in our future than you've done in our past. God that we would see you continue, Lord, to bless us so that we can reach others. Not for ourselves. you're the only superstar.. We give it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hope this is a good week for you of challenge and praying and seeking the Lord. If you want to talk to one of our elders, you want prayer, you want counsel, they're available here as they are at the end of every service in the the link as well as in the main. We love you guys. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.